The heart has reasons which reason knows nothing of. That's a quote by Blaise Pascal that um, Dr. Brad Strun will quote later in this conversation you're about to hear. But I looked it up and there's more to it. The rest of the quote is actually, the heart has reasons which reason does not know. We feel it in a thousand things. It is the heart which experiences God and not the reason. This then is faith. God felt by the heart, not by reason. Interesting. Is that true? Maybe, maybe not, but you might get some perspective on it by listening to this conversation. Brad Strawn is a clinical psychologist. He's also an ordained minister in the Nazarene Church. As a therapist, he's very interested in the ideas around how people actually change. So that's something we talk about in our conversation. But we also look at a lot of other things, how our culture and our context helps influence our perspective on things. And finally, how the capacities of emotions and reason work together to help us determine truth. Hope you'll enjoy the conversation. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, and I'm the Director of Communications at Blueprint 1543. This conversation was recorded at a Theopsych seminar. Theopsych is a project which looks at what new insights concerning human nature might be discovered when you combine theology and psychological science. This conversation was recorded at one of our Theopsych seminars. Theopsych is a project that considers what new insights concerning human nature may be discovered when theology and psychology are brought together, an initiative supporting science-engaged theology. Hosted by Fuller Theological Seminary's Star Office, and Blueprint 1543. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So first I'll just ask you to talk a little bit personally about from the place you were speaking yesterday from mm-hmm. your first talk. So you are um, a clinician, you mm-hmm. are a therapist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're also a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you see yourself as bivocational, having multiple callings? Or is there a one way you put that in, in one statement? Or how do you think of yourself? Yeah, that's Maybe a great question. No, I, think it, I think it does. I, I don't think of myself as bivocational. I think of all those things in a similar way. I often say that my calling is to participate with God in the restoration of all creation. Okay. I just do that in different ways at different times. <laughs> sometimes as a pastor, sometimes as a professor, researcher, sometimes as a writer, sometimes as a, as a clinician. But the, the goal is always the same, like restoring creation, mm-hmm. people, whatever, towards what they were originally intended to be. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And you practice in the Nazarene tradition, is that Yes, that's my, uh-huh, uh-huh. The Wesleyan tradition? The Wesleyan Nazarene tradition, <laughs> that's right. Coming out of the Methodists and other places. <laughs> yeah, so do you find that that tradition is generally, maybe I'll ask two ways, science-friendly mm. and slash psychology-friendly? Is there a difference or the same? Or well, what have you um, experienced? yeah, it's also a good question. I think there are different kinds of Nazarenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on which coast or where in the middle of the country you are. We do have, um, the Church of the Nazarene started like nine different universities. Mm. So mostly we've been friendly to science, at least at that level. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there have been people in the church again who uh, have maybe been nervous about it from time to time. 
And I think, especially now, people are pretty open to psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pastors are talking about going to therapy and... and uh, Openly. Openly, <laughs> from the pulpit, can you imagine? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, and citing research studies, you know, mm-hmm. as part of their sermons. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at least currently, I think, I think we're pretty open. But historically, like a lot of denominations, there's been periods when it was like, yeah, we don't talk about that. You know, <laughs> just pray harder, you'll be okay. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. There's the famous Wesleyan quadrilateral, yes. which if people don't know what that means, it's sort of the way uh, you come to, well, can you explain it? <laughs> to the listening yeah, audience. yeah, I can try. It's a, yeah. So it's funny because John Wesley you know, didn't actually invent it. It was uh, named for him afterwards. But when it comes to trying to make decisions or you know, discern something, mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of denominations would say, like, sola scriptura, like only the Bible. Mm-hmm. Wesley said, well, there's at least four domains of knowledge that we can look at. We, can, we always start with scripture, um, but we can look to our reason, which now would probably include things like philosophy, logic. We can look to our experience, uh, and we can look to our tradition. So those four things put it, and also under reason should probably go empirical science. We can look at all of those and see how they are sort of dialoguing with one another uh, in the hopes that the truth of whatever we're trying to discover will become more clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the kind of cool thing about, about it that I like is that sometimes the science, for example, might cause us to reconsider our interpretation of Scripture. Yeah. So it's a reciprocal, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not like one is the trump card. Right. You always begin with Scripture, but Scripture we understand is an interpretive process. As soon as you start talking about Scripture without just reading it straight... Right. Yeah. You're using reason. Always, right? yeah. yeah. You're <laughs> so always interpreting. So uh-huh. it's just openly acknowledging yeah, that, yeah. that. And then letting tradition have a voice in that conversation. So exactly. what's the church thought over a period of time? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. experience. And you put science under reason, reason, but I think it could also kind of fit into experience too, right? Because it could. It could. One of my I colleagues... Know, I think about experiments, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> that you then experience. Yeah. yeah. One of my colleagues just pulls it out and, and has science as the fifth category. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that works too. So pivoting to yesterday, you talked about uh, location, 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 mm-hmm. and you're coming to really um, appreciate that where you were born and what your background is, and I'm not sure what all you would include in this category, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. your identity really forms and shapes, informs um, how you understand things. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about that? About what, how yeah. you come to, came to understand that and yeah. what it means for you? Well, I think especially for academics, a lot of times we, we get up and talk or write papers and we act as if it's just come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, and so, and then we get in arguments as if those arguments don't have presuppositions or a background behind them. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've written, written about and talked about what I call traditioning oneself, mm-hmm. which is sort of a, a way to just begin by saying, this is me, this is where I am, this is where I come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think that does is it immediately helps the listener know, oh, I don't have to necessarily defend myself against him because I don't have that same view theologically or something like that. So, yeah, I think everything, I mean, gender, race, uh, where in the country you grew up, um, your history, what happened in your families, all that good psychological Mm -hmm. stuff, and then your religious tradition as well. I think all of that, for me, uh, also helps me understand 
what I call what's sort of my central organizing question as an academician. Like, what is the big question that I want to answer? Mm -hmm. And I was talking about, for me, it's the big question is how do humans become persons and how does damage occur and how does healing occur? So I can look at that as a researcher, as a clinician, as a pastor, but that's what I focus most of my time on. Do you think you could think of an example of that at play when you're approaching a situation a topic, a truth claim, and your locatedness as a person plays into that? Like, just so to maybe give... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the easiest one is to think about when my location creates a problem. And and I would jump right away to race. So if I'm working with a person of a different race or culture, ethnicity, it'll be easy for me to imagine that they see and feel and things the way I do as a white male. Mm -hmm. But of course, if they're not a white male, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're going to have a very different way of perceiving and and taking in the world. So to me, it's not just about knowing what that person's view of the world is, but Mm -hmm. I have to know how my view of the world may be interacting and impacting that. Mm -hmm. So for example, sometimes when I work with people of color, they won't ever mention race Mm -hmm. because that's not something you would do with a white man. Mm -hmm. So I have to bring it up. I have to find a place where we can talk about that, Mm -hmm. make it talkable, and then usually really amazing things emerge from that. Yeah, say, hey, I know your experience of life in the world has been different than mine. Yeah, what's it like to be working with this white male, you know? I think it was like Justo Gonzalez is Mm. when he, uh, Santa Biblia, he writes about reading the Bible from a... Uh, Latinx yes. perspective. Right, um, right, right. I had to read that when I was going to school here. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about how if you're in different places in a landscape, even just if you're different people in the landscape, you if you're all just like plopped down there, you're going to describe it in different ways because you're totally. seeing it in different ways. Yep, yep, um, yep. And so what we're talking about is just not assuming that you are the one with the bird's eye view of everything right. or the omniscient view right. of everything. Right. Right. We're not talking about completely relativizing truth, which maybe some people would want to say right. um, that that would be a concern, mm-hmm. but that we just mm-hmm. have different experiences of the world from where we're coming from. But yeah. we have a human tendency, I think, to default to thinking how we see things as objective. Yeah, for <laughs> how sure. Do we, how do you think we teach ourselves to get out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the things is to come in contact with people and ideas that are different. Yeah. You know, so yeah. when you read a book like you read mm-hmm. or you hang out with a person of color mm-hmm. or you go on a trip somewhere, you live in another culture for a while, all of that creates a kind of good catastrophe. It shakes up your own system. Yes. And uh, hopefully it allows you to reorganize in such a way that you say, hey, I'm not the center of the universe. Right. I need to think about this. I need to understand that. And again, for me, most recently, it's been reading about whiteness. In psychological training, we read a lot about cultural awareness. But it's not until recently that we've really emphasized that the therapist has to understand his or her own culture. And so for me, reading about whiteness has been, you know, a catastrophe in a lot of ways. It's like I knew things. I, you know, I went to a very integrated high school, but I didn't know. Yeah. You know, I just didn't know, and I couldn't know. And so, um, you know, reading, education, there's lots of ways. I mean, even there's some great documentary films out now or you know, even, even yeah. art films that can really shock you uh, and start to wake you up a little bit. So I think it's important to say maybe, though, that we're not talking about once you realize that your experience isn't just normal and you start to realize that there's other ways of experiencing the world. Right. We're not talking about 
somehow taking off your locatedness. Right. Like, as if you could. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's talking, we're talking about becoming aware of mm-hmm. it so that when we're mm-hmm. having a conversation, we're not us making rude assumptions. Right. <laughs> or how would you say that? Right. Well, I probably choose a fancy word from totally. a French philosopher. <laughs> uh, Paul Ricoeur talked about what he called distanciation, mm-hmm. which was his idea that we can never be, like you said, we can never be fully objective or fully outside of our location. But we, ha- may, we may have these moments when we, we can do that to a certain extent and so that we can hear someone like more purely <laughs> or hear them from their own perspective. It, but we have to be consciously aware how we shift in and out of that. Yeah. But I really think, again, just, just being aware of your location becomes the best way not to be coercive with it on someone else. Yeah. Yesterday, you said there's, <laughs> at a seminary, we deal a lot with the theology of the academy, mm-hmm. and we saw some of that difference come out in conversation yes. today. Uh-huh. But you said lay theology is not systematic, right. but embodied, non-systematic, non-linear, you may uh-huh. um, have thrown yeah. out some other terms, but can you just talk about that a little more, explain it, flesh it out a little bit? Yeah, you know, again, I think this is where being a pastor really helps me, is that, you know, when you're in the academy, you you play with these really fun big ideas, Mm -hmm. and they're great, and we argue about them and defend them, and it can get really nasty at times, and, but it's also collegial, you know, Mm -hmm. but that stuff doesn't always trickle down. You know, so I would say a lot of the people I see in church are getting their theology, for example, from Christian radio. <laughs> that is very different. You know, that is very different from what a systematic theologian here at Fuller is going to teach. Right. So I think we shouldn't assume that, that lay people know more than they do. Uh, and also, we shouldn't be snooty about it and punish them when they don't. That's another thing of the academy, like kind of looking down. Mm-hmm. Um, because actually, you know, I, I love this image of, you know, some some little old grandma, and I shouldn't call her little, but some grandmother who's been reading the Bible for like 50 years, you know, and her sure. thumbprints are in the, the pages. She's got something to say, even though she doesn't have a, a master's or an MDiv or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we need to learn from each other. But my real interest, again, in, in terms of how people become healed is I, I, wanna, I don't want to heal the academy. <laughs> I, I think they're beyond healing. No. But I, I want to I work with people, you know, in their daily lives where they're struggling. And so that means, you know, kind of being a translator mm-hmm. and recognizing their social location. They don't think in these categories, well, that's atonement theory. You right. know, they think Jesus died for my sins. Right. Okay, that's great. And, and there might be something really helpful about knowing atonement theory. But we need to make those connections for them, I think. Yeah. And not for everybody. No. Because different personality types want more granularity in how they understand things. That's true. They need, and, yeah. need more details. That's right. Know, There's some lay people who are well-read and yeah. you know really get excited about something. Yeah, and yeah. so, it, it, uh, no stereotypes here, but I think that... Again, most of the sort of lay theology, folk theology, where people live, you know, mm-hmm. is just, um, they don't have these categories. Mm-hmm. They don't think quite like, like we do in the academy. Yeah. I have this question a lot, and it kind of came up in one of your talks today. Of I used to have a really high view of how 
your theology affects your behavior, like that mm-hmm. it was all a downstream relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So if you could get all your ideas right, right then your right. behavior would follow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you sort of talked a lot today about how, about the opposite way. Yeah, and that's right. <laughs> like, you kind of need to do both, but the other direction has been way under emphasize can you talk about that a little yeah bit? again it's probably been I, I wouldn't say it's de-emphasized in all christian traditions or in all mm-hmm. times or sure. all cultures sure. but again i think in the western you know kind of north american evangelical church it has been exactly what you've described and it's kind of this idea right that that uh, a good tree will produce good fruit mm-hmm. so i got to take care of that inner tree or whatever that <laughs> thing is first and mm-hmm. then i'll suddenly blossom and and there's some truth i mean our thoughts do impact our feelings and our behaviors but frequently, we don't think ourselves to new behaviors. We behave ourselves to new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. For example, for me, uh, a sermon is not that all informative, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it might create a catastrophe in a person's mind. In other words, it might present an idea they haven't thought about before. Right. But then the key is, what do they do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, are there mechanisms within the church where they could say, wow, you know, Christianity is really about care to the poor, and now I can go plug into this care to the poor But frequently we don't have that, Mm -hmm. so we walk around saying, yes, Christianity is about caring for the poor, but we don't necessarily care for the poor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of a systemic problem, and again, not all churches, but some evangelical Mm -hmm. white churches especially. (laughs) You're using the term catastrophe a lot, which I appreciate, but you're using it in kind of a positive way. Right, right. Can you explain what you mean by that or where that comes from? Yeah, so it comes from this uh, theory of what's called dynamical systems. And um, dynamical systems is this idea that when you have uh, enough complexity within a system, different kinds of things emerge from it. It's for, so, for example, if you take the brain, the complexity of the neurons and all that going on there, one of the things that emerges from that is consciousness. Um, consciousness has always been a mystery mm-hmm. to people. We can't point to where it is in the brain. Uh, we, we don't know how to get rid of it. You know, If we wanted to lobotomize someone, we don't know where that exactly would be. Uh, the other thing about systems is they, they're self-organizing. So you, you, you kind of develop within, again, that social location, that structure, that system you're a part of, and you then are a product of that system. However, when something happens that impacts the system, they call that a catastrophe. <laughs> and, and so now the system has the opportunity to reorganize to a higher level of, of itself, basically. Mm-hmm. Something new can emerge, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, I can think about examples if you've, you know, when you were a kid, if you ever disturbed a, a, an anthill, those ants pretty quickly begin to reorganize right. and <laughs> become mm-hmm. an, an ant colony again. Mm-hmm. Or um, if you think about a pastor leaving a church yeah. kind of in a bad situation, and will that or will that church reorganize in a way that... Uh, in a more healthy way that allows them to think about their role in it and what went wrong with the pastor, or they kind of just go, that was the pastor's fault. We don't have anything to do with it. We're going to double down on our way of seeing the world. So, yeah, I think catastrophes are So it's more than just a new idea introduced, that not all of those would be catastrophes, but it's a new idea that causes the system to reorganize. Exactly, exactly. I like that a lot. In theology, what I learned when I was in seminary here, Fuller, people around Fuller use prophetic in that way, which I actually had not encountered that 
use of the word prophetic uh-huh, uh-huh. as kind of the person who's got the voice who's creating catastrophes. Right, right, <laughs> right. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. um, we're not just like talking about the future or no, whatever. Right, you know? right, right. We're right. shaking things up. Mm-hmm, we're mm-hmm. critiquing the system in fundamental ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm fond of saying every system needs a skeptic. Yeah. Or needs a prophet. Um, the question Maybe is, more can, than one is nice. More than one, right? Because one we can ignore. Yeah. <laughs> so if you get a few that are on the same page. Poor Jeremiah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And hopefully you don't have to act like Ezekiel to get people's attention. But right, I mean. Well, shifting a little bit, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your training as a psychologist mm-hmm. has informed your understanding of God and Christ. A personal question about, and in there maybe you were slow to make theological connections because in the session we have people coming from all different traditions and their understanding of psychology or their understanding of science is Mm going to inform them differently. But if you could share maybe some of the ways that studying science and studying psychology has impacted you and your understanding of God. I might phrase it a little differently if I could, how it's changed my understanding of the human God relationship and interaction. Okay. How's that? I grew up in an academic family, so we were not afraid of questions. We weren't afraid of things like evolution and science. My father was a mathematician. But I think what I found in psychology that I didn't feel in the sort of the folk theology of the church, again, my particular evangelical church, was it provided some answers for the how and the why and, and how can things change. I'm fond of saying that I think that the methodology I learned as a kid was you know, learn more, try harder, and do better. Yeah. Uh, Very decisionistic, very rationalistic. And I think psychology, cognitive psychology, neuropsych, social psychology, group psychology, all suggest that, you know, we are not as free as we think we are. We are uh, products, in some sense, of the forces around us, although we still can have choice and free will. Mm -hmm. And so, as I think as I was taking that in, I thought less about that it was God's job to sort of zap me to make me holy, but that, I mean, I do believe God makes us holy, but that there were um, things that I could participate in. Maybe you might even talk about them as, as God-given methodologies or something, you know, that could bring about more lasting change in a person's life and in my life, you know, which again, I would say the ultimate goal is to, to love in agape ways, self-sacrificing ways. I think the science helped again with knowing some of that. Specifically related to God was this interesting bit of research around the difference between uh, God concepts and God images. And so uh, what we've come to understand is that people have God concepts. You say, who's God to you? And they can sort of cognitively describe it. But there's something underneath that. There's something different, deeper that we call a God image, uh, which is usually, and research has shown this, it's often highly correlated with uh, your parents. One or both parents. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not all it is, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. I remember Ray Anderson, one of my uh, profs uh, here at Fuller uh, in theology, he, he was fond of saying, you know, when, when, you're, when you have a baby, <laughs> you're going to have yeah. a baby, you are God for some time. <laughs> you know, you are there. You bring this them into my, the this world. Is this is reality. <laughs> I set it up. I'm the creator. I can take you out. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, I think the psychology in light of oh, what I, who I say God is, like all loving, is not always how I see God, really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was an important change also for me just through the process of being a therapy client mm-hmm. was unpacking that and being able to move 
to where my concept is much closer to my image now. So also, maybe your theology sounds like it made you more compassionate. Too. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> because if you think, okay, God wants us to kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We just got to try harder to be better people. Right. Then you put that on other people too. And if right. they're doing badly or they have oh, addiction right. or something, right. you're like, try harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, yeah, I had to yeah. do it this way. You need to do it this way yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh. the commandment to love others is improved by can be improved by science and maybe the social sciences in particular. Yeah, I think so. Because it tells us how to love people best, how mm-hmm. their flourishing is increased. Mm-hmm. 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 Another thing that's interesting, and not everyone would agree with this, but um, I think it was Don Browning, who was a pastoral theologian uh, mm-hmm. years ago, he said, sometimes the problem with theology is when it's talking about change and things like that, mm-hmm. is it's always sort of assuming a fairly healthy person. But psychology also brings in the fact that we're not all that healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. if we could just change by changing our ideas, we'd all do it. Right. Um, and it's not that changing your ideas can't help, but a lot of times there needs to be something more than that. Mm-hmm. And um, psychology has been able to say, hey, not everybody's at the same place when they come to Christ. And so they're not all going to look alike and they're not all going to mature the same way and they're going to have different struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that leads to compassion too, I hope. You also mentioned in one of your talks kind of a higher view of emotions. I know for me, I was in a church that was very um, sort of head-oriented, thought-oriented, and you could get to the truth through reason, Right. and your feelings were not to be trusted. They were they were going to lie to you. Mm-hmm. And if there was going to be a proof text, it's like, the heart is deceitful, which <laughs> yeah, right. you're importing so much. Right, like that. that's where emotions <laughs> reside in right. your heart. <laughs> that's what we're talking about, right? But then when I had my own therapy experience, I was like enamored with the experience that once I started being able to like understand my emotions or become mm-hmm. more mindful and mm-hmm. aware of them, that they often acted as these like signals that were yeah. connected to deep truths right. that right. I was not even consciously aware right. of. Right. Whereas my capacity of reason could actually reason me into all sorts of false oh, things completely. about who I am completely. and my life. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, could you talk a little bit about Yeah, that? what's the other... I wish I could remember this phrase, too, but mm-hmm. there's some... I think it's a poet, or the heart has reason that reason doesn't understand, or yeah. something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think our first language is emotion, you know, mm-hmm. as children. Um, and so, um, I think emotion is, is highly... It's kind of what motivates us. Because something happens, we feel an emotion, and then we respond to that emotion. So they're really, really important to understand. And the, and here's another place where science has been really helpful. Neuroscientists, for example, have been able to demonstrate that if you disconnect the you know sort of the limbic system, the emotional area of the brain from the frontal cortex, people start making stupid choices, <laughs> make dumb decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and they even kind of know why it's dumb, but they can't stop themselves from doing it. Mm-hmm. And the theory there is that there's something about when the affect kicks in mm-hmm. that stop, helps us go, wait a second, I'm not even thinking about that right. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I've, I've always loved that, yeah. <laughs> that experiment. Um, but Does that play into your idea of what the image of God means? Because well, if we have that kind of cognition that's so guided and influenced by emotions and then what does that say about God is I guess kind of part of why I'm asking but does God have emotions in your conception of God oh yeah 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 um, 
Yeah, I think God has emotions. <laughs> I don't I feel think, like you can get around it. No, not, yeah. In scripture, it's not, you don't see it as anthropomorphisms. You think it's no, yeah, God I mean, I, yeah. experiencing yeah. reactions. Yeah. You know, and I use the word person a lot. I think you could refer to God as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, not an embodied person, although Jesus had a body, and sure. who knows if Jesus still has a body. That's an sure. interesting theological yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. That we'll never, maybe a we'll lot of someday. people say yes. Yeah, yeah, right. So I think. I use person related or about the issue of relatedness, that right. to be a person is to be able to relate in healthy ways to other persons. And so God is the quintessential person mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, so God would have, I think, feelings um, mm-hmm. um, about what we do and how we act. And But like a good parent, even when he gets frustrated, he still loves us. Sure. And I think if you haven't had that experience with your parents, sure. <laughs> you're going to project onto God that he doesn't love you sure. when you sin or mess up. You were talking about, well, you talked a lot about communities and how shaped mm-hmm. we are by communities and how much we need communities. Right, and, right, right. And then extended cognition, which maybe mm-hmm. in response you can explain extended cognition. I was thinking about Jesus being a particular in a particular body, in mm-hmm. a particular place, mm-hmm. in a particular time, in a particular culture. Mm-hmm. And the way you talk about how, like, if any of those things are different for any of us, they change. So it just made me wonder, maybe we'll never know. Maybe this is completely, any response to this is speculative. <laughs> but Jesus is obviously being formed. Right, <laughs> right. And developed as a child and an adolescent mm-hmm. and an totally. adult by his community and mm-hmm. the surrounding culture. Mm-hmm. Parents, his faith. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So at the same time, in Christianity is considered the perfect example of a human in union with God. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just wondered if you had, had ever thought much about that or <laughs> how, like, I guess if Jesus was born at any other time in any other place, yeah. in any other body, that yeah. it would look differently. But for, but for whatever reason, the fullness of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one of the things that always kind of irks me is that, you know, so many of Jesus' parables are agricultural in nature. Yeah. Because of the place and the time. Yeah. But I don't relate to agriculture it at all. really hard. No, <laughs> I mean, I kill fake plants, you yeah. know, that's how bad it is. So, you know, I, I, I often wonder, like, how would Jesus write this or tell the story now, right? You know, I think would be would be really interesting. And of course, some people try to do that every once in a while, and mm-hmm. <laughs> you get a little mm-hmm. nervous if they, they go too far from the text. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, the, the the whole incarnation is a very difficult issue, and I do think it's wickedly uh, 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 speculative. But certainly, Jesus had to be impacted by his day and time, um, as well as he impacted his day and time. I mentioned earlier that I think Jesus was a catastrophe for the religious leaders of the day, right? Um, he said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, mm-hmm. you know, that's a lot of, that's bravado. You know, he, mm-hmm. he obviously believed and he communed with the father. And so he, he felt he had the right words. He was prophetic in that sense, mm-hmm. um, a skeptic and an agitator, uh, and he gets himself killed, uh, <laughs> because of that. Right. I mean, I guess one of the things I think about is we spend a lot of time worrying about what makes us special as humans, as if it's something that God put in us. But I think what makes us special as humans is how God chooses to relate to us. Hmm. And so when you talk about the divinity of Christ, I wonder if, and actually this is coming to me right now, so I don't know if it's going to be good or not. But but, but I I wonder if in some way when we talk about the divinity of Christ, we're talking about a different way in which God related to Christ than God relates to us. Hmm. 
So maybe it's not even something inside of him that makes him divine, but it's the particular particularity of that relationship between the Son and the Father that brings this divinity. Yeah. God relates to us in similar loving ways, and so some people actually like to talk about divinity of the person, right? The cosmic mm-hmm. Christ, or, mm-hmm. or even in Eastern Orthodoxy, there's the idea of theosis becoming like God. Mm-hmm. So this is not to downplay the way God loves and relates to humans, I think. Maybe he relates to humans differently than animals. I think he loves animals in all of creation too, right? right? Which is why we should pay attention to it. But I, but I think there's something maybe valuable to think about about yeah. there. Yeah. And what you're saying makes me think that incar- a lesson from incarnation is the way that the, the church is the presence of Christ in the world mm-hmm. now yes. is going to look different. In different times and places, right. we're not going to use agricultural right, right, um, right, right. Metaphors, uh-huh, for uh-huh. example, yeah. we have permission and maybe even um, a command to embody Christ differently in different right, contexts. Right, right, right. The hymnody of the church changes every ten or fifteen years. Mm-hmm. You know, not without lots of pain. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Wars over music, which is dumb, yeah. But, no offense uh, to the exclusive hymnody. Right. Psalmnity. No. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's something to that yeah, too. But yeah, for sure. I totally am with you. On that. <laughs> yeah. I think. Uh, well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Let you go now. Yeah.